I now have four Gmail accounts that I switch between on a regular basis. So, uh, Google owns me. <laughs> How, why so many? So you've got, obviously, ours. Ours, the festival. Mm-hmm. My personal one. Mm-hmm. And uh, University of Ottawa is a student. They use the Gmail suite. Ah. So I am currently signed in and active in all four different accounts. Nice. Google just at some point is, it just like freaks out on me. Like I'm constantly going into incognito windows just so I can have multiple ones open and doing stuff in them at one time. And then as soon as you hit number like three, Google is just like, "Mm, no more. (laughs) No lady. Yeah, no mas. (laughs) Welcome to the newest episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. And welcome back. Welcome back. Connor. Welcome back. Welcome back. I think that is. <laughs> oh. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. We're back. Our Halloween episode is out, but it's not Halloween yet. So no, it's, it's a weird in-between time. Yes. I think it's a good idea to watch like scary things on television and read scary books. And it's you, probably not, but I still think it is. <laughs> well, it is It is that time of year where you're like, ooh, I'm going to check out whatever. You know. That's why I started watching the Sabrina reboot was around this time last mm. year. Uh, the guy who wrote Perks of Being a Wallflower, his next book is apparently like a horror book. And I picked it up at uh, Walmart Oh, nice. on the strength of I Know How Much You Love that book. I do love that I book. I haven't read it yet, but I picked up like the horror book because I was like, maybe this will be... The the Perks of Being a Wallflower is really good and a very easy read because it's mm-hmm. like a young adult right. sort of. This one stuff. is thick. Yes, like probably... it looks like a brick of a book, which I enjoy. Yeah. I just finished like an eight hundred page brick last night, and I was just like, <sighs> I don't have that kind of time anymore. I know you don't. <laughs> um, but yes. But speaking of scary things, we had a very exciting week last week. We did! That we didn't get to talk about with our Halloween episode because uh, we record two at a time. Uh, But I was at work and a friend that I went to grade five with, randomly enough, don't ask, it's a weird thing, uh, messages me on Facebook. She's like, and that's why we drink mentioned you guys. And I was like, what? Like, my jaw (laughs) dropped. And I was just like, huh? So I went and I looked at, like, the description on my phone of what the week episode was. And uh, back in February, maybe, I put together show notes for Christine about Bruce MacArthur, the killer, the serial killer in Toronto's Gate Village. And I sent that in and she used them for her story. I know. Very exciting. Uh, I am now, and that's why we drink scapegoat for all bad puns. puns? Yes, we do. Which are. I am, anyway. So you do love a good pun. I do, I, I really and a do. bad pun. Bad puns are even better. <laughs> so it was a very exciting week, and our traffic is up. Woo-hoo. So we've picked up some listeners from that. I think I suspect. So welcome to Rabbit Holes Podcast. Uh, you will quickly notice that our show is modeled in its form, at least. Yes, on, and that's why we drink. It's format, yeah. Because for... I was literally driving home one day, and as M and Christine were talking about like the mechanics of the show, I'm like, Andy and I can do that. 
<laughs> Maybe not as well at first, but we'll get there. <laughs> Which is why we started the show. We yeah. just needed the model and they gave it to us. So, so yeah. Woohoo! Although I feel really bad. I was listening to our Halloween episode today. Yeah. And uh, we misgendered M. I know. I did that once, like, ages ago, too. And, and like, we I... both did it in the Halloween oh. episode. Yeah. Our apologies to M. We know it's they and not one of the two binary genders. Uh, we are just old and not as woke as we like to think we are. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I definitely know I'm not as woke as I, <laughs> I'd like to think I am. But and it's just that sort of, you know, uh, slip of the tongue from something you're... Yeah. Uh, it's. I was like reading it. I was listening to it today. I was like, ah, fuck, <laughs> off. And then we did it a couple more times. So I was like, no, damn it, because we're gonna pick up listeners, and then they're gonna listen to this, and they're gonna be like, ah. So please don't add us. We are well aware that we've done this. That we're terrible. Yeah, and no disrespect intended. Just no. our really old school mentalities have to be reformed, reshaped, and we're getting there. It's just. It's hard to reprogram your pathways after 30 to 40 years of living on this earth. But we're trying. Yeah. And it was funny because I was telling Dan, uh, my husband, for new listeners, uh, all about how we got mentioned on this really big podcast. And I was telling him about Christine and M, and I was using them. Right. Like, they, I was using the correct. <laughs> and I was like so proud of myself because, you know, again, I'm almost 40. Uh, but then I was listening to it today. I was like, oh, crap. Really? This is where I choose in public? Not talking to Dan, like, <laughs> while we're high on the couch. Like, well, uh, to make you feel better, as I was editing last week's episode, I realized I called the Lancasters the Lannisters. <laughs> I got that, too. And as I was the ed- doing the editing, I was like, fuck me, not Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> well, in all fairness, this is a lot of the stuff Oh, it's a, like, I was unemployed the summer I first read those, so I have, like, a rant locked and loaded about how it's just British history with, like, dragons. <laughs> well, yeah, because, like, you think about the Red Wedding, there was, that's the copy of the Scottish um, dinner, the yeah. dinner at the Scottish castle with the king, and yeah. he killed everybody. You can put the Starks in place of, like, the Northern York family. Like, yeah. Yeah. There's it's very much the War of the Roses. Translations, yes. Yeah. So, but I was listening to it and I'm just like, Ellie's going to text me and I'm going to have to like defend myself once again to her. (laughs) So before like people like get on a high horse about that, I know I was wrong in a really dumb and public way, which should be a t-shirt for us because it's basically what we are. (laughs) That is a very true. Yeah. Uh, We have our award winner or award winner, contest winner. (laughs) Like I am not getting a statuette. You're out of your mind. (laughs) Which I haven't even emailed her. I let her husband know. Okay. <laughs> and I said to email her, and I said, I've been waiting. I just haven't got a chance to do it yet. Yes. But so we had a contest Amy. running for uh, putting out uh, reviews and ratings for us, and we were very late in picking a winner because we were, have both been living a uh, sheer gong show of an existence for the last month plus. Well, in your case, the children are how old? Four. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Uh, me, it's just been a little bit shorter. Um, and so, but we do have our winner. It's Amy. Yes. And uh, Amy, when you hear this, feel free to head over to our merch tab on the website, check out the Redbubble store and let Andy know what you want. And we will get that shipped off for you as soon as possible. Yeah. Faster than actually letting you know you're the winner. <laughs> yes, that is true. <laughs> uh, 
but I do know she's on maternity leave, so... Okay. <laughs> so we all have time on our hands. Yes. <laughs> and understand the crazy life. Got it. <laughs> and if those of you who didn't, like, my, my daughter, when she had pink eye, so graciously picked the name out of the hat. Uh, we will not send you the pink eye, though. No. <laughs> So, yeah, we'd better dive into our stories. Mm-hmm. I went first last week, so that means you guys go first this week. And yeah. you have hyped Sorry. the shit out of the stories, so it better be good. So, <laughs> this is bonkers. Yay. Like, it's true crime for those people who've picked us up uh, after listening to... Um, and that's why we drink. That's not what I intended to do because mm-hmm. I had a different, but this one just sort of came up and I was like, no, no, I have to do this <laughs> because it's so crazy. Okay. So I fell down this rabbit hole because of an article from the website Cracked came up on Facebook and I was reading this article, like I clicked on it through Facebook and it was a list of like crazy, crazy murders that stumped cops. Um, and I was reading this while I was putting down Victoria one night. Like, so, to Victoria, your child, like, no, so your bedtime stories? No. Oh. oh, I was waiting for her to fall asleep so I could, like, <laughs> but not out. fall asleep myself ah. so that I could wake up Dan so he didn't wake up at 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock in the morning and the kitchen's still dirty and the fish haven't been fed and there's no lunches <laughs> made so then you're up to, like, 3 and anyways. <laughs> this is me trying not to fall asleep. So... I read the article, I closed it, not thinking anything of it, but later I felt myself found myself thinking about the last murder they featured, so I had to Google it. But I couldn't remember what it was, so I Googled the words Apron Magnet Murder Batman LA and struck gold. <laughs> Google's algorithm is just like, what is happening? <laughs> I know. It's like, can someone check on Andy? We don't think she's okay. And I wasn't smoking weed. Um, as with the Brady story, I could not find the original article. I really do have to start saving stuff on Facebook because I sort of just like read it and closed it and yeah. didn't think anything of it. Um, so this is the tale of the murder of Fred Oishrik, the owner of a successful apron manufacturing business. Hmm. Yes, this man became very wealthy making aprons. This is where the 20s and 30s come in, right? Because yeah. I feel like this can't be this year. Oh, no, no. <laughs> so Fred was described as a dour and hard drinker. Hmm, sounds like a fun guy. Yeah. And in the early 1900s, he married Dolly, whose real name was Wal... Walberger. That was her first name. Ooh. Yeah. Hence, she went by Dolly. <laughs> uh, she was described as calmly, which I guess means attractive, and a naughty vamp. Yeah. Fred and Dolly lived in an affluent area of uh, Milwaukee in what I'm guessing is a nice house, and it had a roomy attic. One day, Dolly was visiting Fred at the factory when a 17-year-old sewing machine repair guy named Otto caught her eye. A little while later, she called Fred very upset because her sewing machine had broken. (laughs) Convenient. Fred said, don't worry, your pretty little head doll, I'll send my man around to fix it up for you. Or at least that's what I picture him saying. As she put away the bat from where she took it to the sewing machine to get him over. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and if you have not guessed, that's what she was hoping for. When poor Otto showed up, Dolly was ready. She greeted him wearing a, her silk robe, stockings, perfume, and nothing else. <laughs> like, she wasn't even subtle. <laughs> now you see where the naughty vamp references yes. come from. This is how, like, old-timey porn started, right? <laughs> 
Now, not surprised he fell for it because he was 17. 17 years old after all. Yeah. And they started having an affair. First, they would meet at his rooming house or hotels, but I guess she got tired of going out for her side piece <laughs> and decided to spice it up. So Otto would start coming over to her house. Fred worked long hours making millions in aprons so they could have at it at her, in her marital bed and he did not even notice. <laughs> However, since it was, again, the 1910s, everyone was a housewife in this area and the neighbors were getting pretty suspicious of Dolly, vagabond half-brother that she, uh, who would show up when Fred wasn't. <laughs> so she told everybody it was her half-brother. Yeah, half-brother. Again, remembering back to your porn story from ages ago about how, like, incest is one of the most popular search terms. Like, this yeah. is where old-timey porn started. Exactly. So, to avoid being ratted at to Fred, she came up with a plan. Okay. Otto should move into the attic. <laughs> it was roomy, and Fred never went up there. Only catch for Otto was he had to quit his job, cut all ties with his life, and never leave the house again. Yeah, but, like, sex, so what 17-year-old's not going to be okay with that? Exactly. For some reason, he agreed, so Dolly <laughs> moved him in, and the local gossip never made it to Fred's ears. <laughs> now, there, uh, there's not much we know about Otto, but remember, he was only 17, at the most 18 at the time. He had no family to speak of, no real friend group, and, well, he, again, he was living in a boarding house. Mm -hmm. So I guess when he pretty much disappeared from life, there was no one really to notice. Okay. Uh, we do know that he loved Pulp Fiction, the stories of murder, sex, and drugs that came out of the popular Penny Dreadful era. Yeah. The dime novels. Yeah. And he was now living one of those stories. <laughs> so Otto moved into the windowless room in the attic. He would come out during the days to have sex with Dolly, help her keep house, and make bathtub gin. <laughs> Guys will do anything for an easy leg. <laughs> when he was in his attic room, he spent his time reading and writing his own Pulp Fiction stories. Dolly would check books out of the library for him, and she would submit his stories to publishers, hmm. some of which were published under a pen name. Shortly after Otto moved in, the relationship turned from illicit lovers to dominant submissive. Otto was totally in love and devoted to Dolly. In one article, he was quoted as describing his love and devotion as one would love a mother. Ew. Um, Dolly was 16 years older than him. Ugh. No, this and is good. at this time, like in the 1900s, that means she could have been his mother. Like... Yeah. Yeah. I don't but think they had any children. Like, Dolly didn't have any children. I mean, I'm doing the math in my head. I'm like, 16... So... She's only 33, 34, maybe. Like, that's not, like, wildly old to be having an affair, regardless of the person's age. But then I'm like, no, it's the 1910s. So, like, she's well through midlife. <laughs> yeah. So they lived like this for five years in Milwaukee Jesus. until Fred started to question his sanity. He heard strange noises, saw shadows walking past his door at night, and things like his cigars would go missing. It's gaslighting. It's like American Gaslighting, that movie, which, by the way, awesome movie, but it's like gaslighting. So in 1918, Fred decided to move to L.A. Dolly agreed to move as long as she could pick the house and it had an attic. <laughs> Fred agreed, and they found one of the few homes in L.A. with an attic. Dolly sent Otto on ahead so that when Fred and Dolly arrived, Otto was already living in the attic. So creepy. 
So the move to LA did not help. So when they moved, like he sold his factory, bought a new factory, moved everything out to LA, okay. hoping that this would new start. Well, he was either thinking that it was haunted because again, this was strange noises and yeah, around that time where spirituals and mm. all that true, true, true. Yep. shit was popular. Um, but after the move to LA did not help, the marriage went downhill while Fred ramped up his drinking. That'll they, solve it. They fought often, and the fights became more violent. On the night of August 22nd, 1922, four years after the move, Fred and Dolly got into a particularly brutal fight. Otto, again, you have to remember he had to listen to four years of brutal fights and not do anything, feared for his love's life, ran downstairs with Fred's guns. Some articles said rifles, some articles said... Um, Handguns. Handguns, something along those lines. Boom sticks. Yeah. Uh, Fred was surprised to see his former sewing machine repairman <laughs> in his house in LA. Yeah. Understatement. <laughs> flew in and flew into a rage. Otto fired three shots into Fred's chest, killing him. Hmm. After the murder, the two figured they needed a plan. Y- yeah. As one does, I guess. Uh, Dolly took off Fred's expensive diamond watch and had Otto lock her in a closet. Otto took the guns and the watch and ran back upstairs to his hidey hole in the attic. When the cops arrived, as they were called by neighbors who heard the shots, okay. they found Fred dead and a screaming Dolly locked in the closet. Dolly's story was someone robbed Fred, took his diamond watch, and locked her in the closet and then shot Fred. Cops were suspicious of her story, but if she killed her husband, how did she lock herself in the closet? Very good question. No one else was in the ha- and No one else was in the house that night, as far as they could tell, and there were no sightings of anyone leaving Mm -hmm. the area of the house. The cops became more suspicious when Dolly claimed that her and Fred never argued. (laughs) I'm gonna guess the neighbors had something to say about that, too. I also think anyone with an ounce of common sense thinks every marriage has arguments. So as soon as someone says there was none, that's when you Mm -hmm. start looking at them. Exactly. Uh, Fred did not seem to have any enemies, but he did have a hell of a lot of money, which Dolly got most of, if not all. They figured it was Dolly, but could not figure out how she got herself locked in the closet. So she was free to go for right now. Now, Dolly was as rich as fuck, a widow living her best life. She purchased a new house and moved her and herself auto herself and Otto in. Now, if you're thinking poor old Otto finally got to live downstairs, you'd be wrong. Yeah. No surprise. Dolly found a new house with an attic and moved Otto in up there. Again, houses in LA don't usually have attics. Mm. So she found another house. With one. With one. And he's like up to what, like almost 10 years living in an attic now? Yeah. Dolly... Dolly had become interested in her late husband's estate attorney, Herman Shapiro. When she started dating Herman, she started making mistakes. She stupidly gave Herman Fred's quote-unquote stolen watch, which the lawyer recognized. Oh, boy. Dolly told him that she found it under a seat cushion and saw no need to tell the police. Mm. He accepted that story, and they continued to date. Man will do anything for an easy lay. <laughs> she had some 
Like, you know how last year we were all talking about big dick energy? Yeah. This woman had some power pussy energy. <laughs> this lady just emanated power pussy. <laughs> it keeps going. <laughs> so, Otto was contented to live in the attic. He referred to himself as being enslaved in his love to her and a sex slave. I'm not sure what you would classify this relationship as, but it was messed up. Like, it's sort of like a Stockholm syndrome, yeah. like, but he's not a hostage, but he kind of is. Like, he's been living in this attic since he was 17. 17. Yeah. Probably one of his first sexual experiences as well. Yeah. And, like, he had no family, so who knows how who would miss uh, how him? long he's been without a family. So right. all of a sudden, he has a lover who's also, like, a motherly figure. It's just very weird. Fucked up. <laughs> At this point, Otto was spending more time writing on a typewriter that he purchased with the money Dolly gave him from the sale of his stories. Money he earned and that Dolly would give him in nickels and dimes. Nothing larger. Like, why? I'm not, I could not find if she would take a cut or how many stories he was selling, but his pen name was Walter Klein. Okay. But, like, if she's rich AF, why are we even talking about budgeting and allowances and pin money? Like... He's your sex slave in the attic. Like, whatever he wants, he gets. Like, gaslighting, I guess. Back, yeah. Abuse, right? Like, yeah. this is an abusive relationship. I know. I'm trying to, like, throw some logic into a very illogical situation. <laughs> Just stop. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, with Otto's writing and Herman's long days in court, what's a lady like Dolly to do? <laughs> Only one thing. To get a side, side piece. <laughs> so, she took another lover named Roy Klum. Not much is known about Roy, except Dolly told him that she had a gun that looked just like the one that killed her husband. She then asked him if he wouldn't mind throwing it into the tar pits for her, because she would hate if the police found it and got the wrong idea. <laughs> she told a similar story to a male neighbor, but asked him to bury the gun for her. So both men happily disposed of guns. God. That were the exact same as the ones used to murder her husband. That she admits they're the exact same. Men will do anything for an easy lay or the hope of an easy lay. Major pussy power. Yeah. Like, <laughs> this is big dick energy override. <laughs> so after a couple of volatile years, Dolly and Roy broke up. And what did he do? He walked right into the police station with a story about the gun. I mean, as one of the pettiest people on the planet, I can't fault him for that at all. Oh, there's Wouldn't a lot of petty? Move. You're going to love the petty oh, people. Good. I was like, oh, there's a lot of petty in this, too. It's probably also why I did this story. Because yeah. it's bonkers, and there's so much petty. But also, like, you're a strong woman. Why couldn't you just have disposed of the damn guns yourself? Well, she's a delicate flower. <laughs> Do these things yourself, people, when you involve others. The bigger the conspiracy, the more chances of it falling exactly. apart on you. So the police searched the area around the tar pits and found the gun and arrested Dolly. When the tabloids caught wind of the arrest, they put it in and the gun on the front page. The super helpful neighbor ran right to the cops and gave up Dolly's other gun. Charges were dropped after the guns, guns were too rusted to prove if one fired the fatal shot. And they still could not figure out how she locked herself in the closet. Right. Yes. While Dolly was in jail... She begged Herman to bring groceries to her house and fe feed her vagabond half-brother that lived in her attic. 
convenient. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that he should knock on the ceiling of her bedroom closet to let Otto know it was safe to come out. Herman did just that, out of devotion for Dolly, or the what the fuck factor, I don't know. Because, like, if you were in jail and you were like, Andy, I need you to go home, knock on my ceiling, and bring food to someone, I would do it. Yes. Out of the sheer need to find out what the fuck is going on. <laughs> I thought you would do it because we're best friends. I would do it because we're best friends, but obviously I'd be like... The first call we make to each other when we have a body to bury. like. true. <laughs> Um, so, like, I can see why he would go and be like, "Uh uh-huh, I gotta find out what the hell she's talking about, right? So Otto was thrilled to have someone else to talk to. Remember, he had been living in the attic for over 10 years, in attics for over 10 years, and five years since they moved to LA, which I assume was the last time he was out in public for any length of time, because he moved to LA before dolly and fred so he would have trained it across he worked for a little bit in la before they came um so he hasn't talked to anybody else but dolly in five years and before that another four to five year stretch yeah Yeah. at least five year stretch yeah with the exception of the last time he saw someone that wasn't dolly was fred when he murdered him right i do have to say as a severe introverted hermit that sounds delightful to me (laughs) Oh, Only no. having to talk to one or two people, I, I could be down for that. <laughs> so Otto spilled his guts, told of the affair with Dolly, his sexual exploits, the murder, his life in the attic, all of it. <clears throat> Herman Old poker face. Yeah. Her, well, he didn't know who Herman was. Herman was pissed off, but told Otto that he would keep the secret safe as long as Otto left L.A. right now. According uh, Otto, according to some reports, left L.A. terrified and moved to Vancouver under his pen name. Herman, instead of saying, this is way too fucked up for me, and leaving, moved in with the newly freed Dolly. Oh, wow. Okay. see power! He's a lawyer, though, right? So he has a duty to report all that to the court. And he's clearly decided not to, so I'm assuming there's an element of blackmail happening here. I also am going to assume that. (laughs) They lived together for more than seven years. What? Yes. So Herman and Dolly lived together for seven years until it ended on a sour note. And Herman was feeling pretty petty, so much so that he strolled into the police station and told the whole strange story. I don't know if it caused a part in the breakup, but Otto had just also moved back to L.A. around this time. Oh, oh, Otto. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I get you've been scarred, but make better life choices, buddy. The cops arrested both Dolly and Otto. The papers and the paparazzi had a field day with the story, following Dolly and Otto's every movement. The paper call papers called Otto the Batman of Los Angeles due to his former, formerly bat cave-like living circumstances. Superhero comics, the descendants of the Pulp Fiction novels, um, and more importantly, the character of Batman would not come along for a number more years. Yeah, okay, but so. so Pulp Fiction novels are the sort of descendants of the Penny Dreadfuls, yeah. and comic books are the descendants uh, of both of those. Yeah. yeah. So, he was not portrayed as the tragic romantic figure he had pictured himself as being, but instead the public saw him as a sexual deviant and fiend. Oh, yeah, victim poor. blaming. You're not the one I'd have put those labels on. I know. Poor Otto. The trial was a hot ticket with a lot of media coverage, however, it ended with a whimper. Otto was found guilty of manslaughter, but the statute of limitation had run out, 
because the statute of limitation was at that time was seven years, and this was eight years right after. So he was free man, even though they tried him, he was still a free man. Dolly got herself a high-powered lawyer and a hung jury. Nice. After the trial, Otto left L.A. and disappeared. Most people assumed that he changed his name and lived his life away from the spotlight. He could have become a full-time writer. We don't know. He could have found another attic to live in. That is true. (laughs) Uh, Dolly was not alone uh, for long, however. Shortly after her trial ended, she began what would turn into a 30-year relationship, finally getting remarried only two weeks before her death at 81. (laughs) Okay. I don't know how she died, though. <laughs> so I will finish this bonkers tale with a quote from the L.A. Times back in 1930. Nothing in fiction is more dramatic than the story of a sudden quarrel in the hallway, the popping out of an armed jack-in-the-box, the struggle, the slaying, the locking of Miss Oldernstrike in the closet with a key outside and the mysterious disappearance of the slayer back into his cubbyhole. Yes, it must be admitted, fiction has been outdone again. <laughs> That's the uh, tale of the married woman who kept her lover in the attic. Hmm. Or the Batman case, a lurid tale of love and death. Nice. Yeah. I, I like, that just was wild. <laughs> you have to admit, that's wild. And also, like, so much abuse. Yes. I mean... Poor Otto. <laughs> Poor Otto. So... I don't really feel that bad for Dolly. Like, I get that no. Fred was a jerk, but, like, she she abused that poor boy. The poor man. But it's really indicative of, like, the social constructs that people had. Like, it wasn't her that was a sexual deviant, even though it was very clear to our modern sensibilities that, like, she clearly had a fucked up influence over this young man. But, like... She was just then, a naughty vamp. Yeah, and there was no concept back then that women could actually be sexual creatures and do that type of thing. Or sexual predators. Or sexual predators, yeah. Um, but yes, it's wild that there's a seven-year statute of limitation on murder. Manslaughter. Manslaughter. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because he was convicted, he was tried and convicted of manslaughter because it wasn't premeditated, right? They were right. having a fight. He rushed came in. down, rushed down to save his lady love. Hmm. Again, this guy was not playing with a full deck, right? Yeah. Um, but as I am now off work, um, I am, like, tits deep into, like, a 200-episode playlist of American Justice on YouTube. <laughs> the whole concept of uh, Statues of Limitations blows my mind for, like, serious crimes above a certain, like, seriousness. Like, yeah. I get it. You, like, steal a loaf of bread, no one gets hurt, whatever. Like, let's let that go after a couple of years. But, like, kidnapping. Like, one guy kidnapped a woman and held her in a very similar situation to this, but worse, because he kept her in a box under his bed. And when they got to trial, they couldn't charge him with the kidnapping because the statute of limitations had run out because he had held her for so long. So they had to prove that the kidnapping was continuous and not just a one-time event at the beginning. And the defense was arguing, like, oh, but look at these love letters she wrote him. So clearly she was there voluntarily. It's like, you can't even begin to understand what that does to a person's mind. Like, no, this is like the 80s or 90s. Like, Stockholm Syndrome was one thing, but there was no concept of, like, the deeper issues there. Yeah. So he went into court. And the fact that she would do anything just to stay alive. Yeah. So he went into court. He's like, yeah, I kidnapped her. But uh, she decided to stay with me after a few years. So... Whatever. And, like, because statues have run out, like, 
the defense or the prosecution had to prove that it was an ongoing kidnapping situation. And I'm like, why are there statutes of limitations on serious shit like this? Oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I forgot to say in the beginning, just a note on the two notes on the Bruce MacArthur. Yep. So, because I was listening to the Uncover okay. CBC series, uh, podcast series. They, they did a season on the village. Oh, okay. And they talked about... Um, so, actually, his first victim was actually his partner. Oh. So, um, Sandy is what everybody called him. They were actually together. Hmm. And the police would have invest- would have interviewed Bruce MacArthur when he went missing. Yeah. So, not only did they interview him a bunch of times, but they knew... That he was dating. So when it, he showed up in um, Kinsman's diary as Bruce, and they right. tracked him down to Bruce MacArthur, they knew Bruce because he was dating the first victim. But did they have that direct link? Yeah, because like when they found... Dude. Well, because Andrew Kinsman was the last victim, and the victim yeah. that sort of became his undoing. But I'm sure there's a lot of men named Bruce. Yes, but then they t- tied the the vehicle that they yeah, saw Andrew again. Yeah. So then they tied that to Bruce MacArthur Mm-mm. and then they knew Bruce MacArthur was Sandy's partner and he was a very jealous. Hmm. Interesting. So like I get how a lot of, um, some of the, especially at that time when his trial was going on, they're talking about like how you don't become a serial killer that late in life. Yeah. But potentially he could have, because he didn't kill just a random stranger, his first victim. Potentially. His first known confirmed. Yes. His first known confirmed was his partner Mm. that he could have killed in a jealous rage and then discovered he liked it. Right. So technically he could have in the zeitgeist of serial killers have become a serial killer that late in life. I think once they start doing some more digging, they're going to find this crimes probably go back way farther. Well, actually, that's what the whole village is about. Right. So they tried. They looked at a bunch because there was a lot of... um, in the 80s, 70s, and 80s, there was a bunch of murders of gay men who were never... Um, and none of them either fit his M.O. They they just, like, he wasn't even around at the time, so they couldn't pick any of them. And these are the ones that the cops were still looking into. Right. Um, so it doesn't seem like they'll be able to tie him to too many unless the cops come out with new ones. But right. uh, listen to the season three of, the vil- of Uncover the Village. It was really good. Nice. Google. I meant to say that at the beginning. I totally forgot. But yeah, that's my weird, wacky, sex murder <laughs> attic story. Well, we need to stop doing this because my story is also sex tangential, based off of dudes who just will do anything for an easy lay. <laughs> so. <laughs> Here we are. I don't know why I'm going to name the show, but... <laughs> I think it's Pussy Power. <laughs> yeah, actually. <laughs> that might work. Okay. So, the Google app suggests top news stories that you may be interested in based off of your search history, right? <laughs> and so, I tend to get a lot of, um, uh, like, 19 Kids Accounting, because I'll, like, hate troll them through the news to see what bonkers stuff that family is up to this week. And sometimes, if we're both logged into the... Um the rabbit holes yeah. podcast at the same time, like sometimes it'll think we're both. So oh, sometimes yeah. I'll see on like when I, you know, when you Google right. the drop down, oh. I'll be like, 
Oh, no. I don't think I googled this. Oh, I think no. The subject, one day I was like, oh, no. I hope Elise doesn't see this. I don't want her to know what I was googling. Same. We'll just, we won't ask questions, okay? Yeah. We'll just pretend it's not. Piggy swear. Yeah, yeah. We'll but there was pretend. one I really noticed one time, and it was the time that I was like, oh, shit, I was googling some stuff the night before and it was like work or like your phd related so i was like i definitely know for sure (laughs) shit i was not googling that yeah wait you weren't spending multiple hours at 3 a.m looking at qualitative no epistemology philosophy no okay uh so on top of like the 18 kids accounting and now recently i've been getting a lot of like business school rankings which is like thrown off the algorithms because i don't really care about that in my personal time so (laughs) thanks google the other thing i get a lot of is royal news because it's me um and i get a lot of the british royal news mostly that's what i'm googling Uh, but this week a tangential story popped up and it's something i never looked for expressly so i got sucked down the rabbit hole in this one because it really took me on like it caught my fancy in a big bad way the headline was something like royal consort stripped of titles for disloyalty and I thought, cool, I woke up in the 1700s. Awesome. <laughs> let's, uh, let's, let's see what happened. But no, this legit just happened in the last couple of weeks, and it got me thinking about royal mistresses. So that's what my story is about today. Nice. But let's start with a story that started me down this rabbit hole, and that's the case of the Thai king and his royal household. Have you heard any of this happening? Ah, uh, no. Okay. So, uh, preemptive apology for mispronunciations. As yeah, we'll are. see this in the next story. I'm not even attempting okay. some apologies because I was like, I will butcher this. King Vajiralongkorn uh, came to the throne in 2016 at the death of his father. He'd had a rocky slash scandalous romantic history. He had been married three times before he came to the throne. Uh, he's no secret to airing his dirty romantic laundry either. He publicly denounced his second wife in 1996, who then felt she had to flee to the U.S., at which point he disowned the four sons he had with her. Uh, And fun fact, they'd only been married for two years at that point. So he had a really long-term marriage for his first one. It lasted 20 or 30 years. They broke up. He married this other woman pretty quickly afterwards, but obviously they'd been together for a while if she'd had four of his sons. Or two sets of twins, yeah. I think it was singles. And then they'd only married two years, and then he kicked her out in a very public fashion. Then he got remarried and publicly stripped his third wife of all of her titles in 2014, but kept her 14-year-old son to raise. So technically the kid was at like a posh European boarding school, but he maintained parental custody of the child and kicked out wife number three. So in May of this year, he married his fourth wife and long-term companion, Queen Saditha. And in July of this year, just two months after that official marriage, he officially made Sinit... Wangvajirapakdi, age 35, but looking a smooth 25, his official consort. She looks beautiful. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we'd all like to make her your con- our consort, yeah, is yeah. what you're saying? Okay. Like, if she, she's looking for a new job at this point, so, like, <laughs> she's not going to be hurting for companionship. Uh, Siniat was the first person to hold the title of official consort in Thailand in almost a century. That's how important she was to this king. Uh, These two women, his official queen and the consort, weren't just window dressings either. The queen is a former flight attendant and is the deputy head of the king's bodyguard unit. And that might sound hanky, but like, no, she's been legit trained in bodyguard techniques and self-defense and stuff like that. While Sinient 
was a major general in the army, is a trained fighter pilot, holds a nursing degree, and has also been trained as a personal bodyguard. So more than just window dressings, these women mm-hmm. are legit. Sunina's appointment came with a lot of unprecedented press for the Thai royal house. Photos of her were splashed across the palace's website, including some really casual snaps of her with the king. And for a royal house that enjoys its secrecy, it raised a lot of eyebrows at the time. And a detailed biography of her was also released, which is how we know about her nursing degree and her Hmm. military history. All really out of the ordinary. Like, royal watchers at the time were like, like, what the hell is happening? Like, this is odd. Then, a royal gazette, so a a newsletter coming from the royal house, was published just a couple of weeks ago announcing that Sininat had been stripped of all of her titles. The consort lost everything. The statement in the Gazette said Saninat had, quote, shown resistance and pressure in every manner to stop the appointment of the queen ahead of the coronation in May, and that, quote, the king gave her a royal consort position in hopes of relieving the pressure and a problem that could affect the monarchy. So, reading between the lines, this young upstart felt that she deserved to be at an equal, if not placed ahead of his official wife in terms of royal placement and was making waves about it in the palace and not being quiet about her dislike if it got to the king. And the queen is set to be, uh, her coronation is set for the next couple of months. Oh. So it's kind of that in-between period where a man who's on his fourth official wife could decide he's ready for a fifth official wife. So she's got a ticking clock on that. Once they're crowned, it's a little bit harder because the Tyrell family are considered semi-deities. So it becomes a more more difficult task of putting aside a wife than it would be beforehand. So Uh, the statement that went out in that gazette and no doubt drafted by the king accused Sidney Nat of, quote, resistance against the king and queen and of abusing her power to give orders on the king's behalf. Furthermore, the statement said that the king had learned, quote, she neither was grateful to the titles bestowed upon her, nor did she behave appropriately according to her status. So one of the articles I was reading that I'm not going to end up quoting here was that she was um, really living like she owned the place, Mm. giving orders, trying to set like direction and policy for like household affairs that were really the queen. She was the Anne Boleyn of the situation? Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) That's a good way to put it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So royal watchers and sources say that the root of the conflict was that Sininat failed to respect royal tradition by trying to make herself equivalent to the queen, which was in defiance of the royal couple. The statement made the matter very plain when it said Sininat's behavior disrespected the monarchy, caused conflicting conflict among royal household officials, and created misunderstanding among the public. As a consequence, she was stripped of her royal titles, decorations, position in the royal guards, and her military ranks. Uh, but beyond what we've learned from the palace itself, it's unlikely that we'll ever know more. Uh, the Thai royals are seen as semi-divine, as I said, and as such, Thailand has very strict les majesté laws, which forbid shit-talking about the monarchs, and the monarch gets to decide what that looks like, so these laws are famously strict. So we have this public announcement, and we in the West can read in between the lines, but Thailand's press can't without dicing very finely on the line yeah. of what's going to get them in trouble. People face up to 15 years in prison if convicted of threatening or insulting the monarchy. Oh. And threat is a one thing. And insults, it's when it's down to the person being insulted, yeah. can be very mild, right? Uh, so I can add this story that I've just told you about to my broke-down palace reason for not visiting the country. There you go. Now I have two. 
<laughs> yeah, because I think we just probably insulted some. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. We're, yeah. <laughs> if this ever ends up, like, being played anywhere in Thailand, we're on a list. Sorry. <laughs> and so are the people listening to us. You should have turned us off by now. Yes. We should have probably given some sort of warning. Feel free to, like, say you had no clue what we were going to talk about, and we're Western devils. Like, yeah. the white devil. It's okay. We're fine with that. I am, at least. I speak for <laughs> myself. <laughs> I'm also, I probably will never go to Thailand. So. I was already not going because it broke down palace, so it <laughs> would have been fine. <laughs> a lot of this story honestly reads like some really old school pre-democracy shit. Uh, so let's look at some of those stories that we may be a little bit more familiar with based on off our cultural background. And since my background is in European history and I grew up in a Eurocentric world, you'll have to pardon my ignorance for not looking too widely beyond the European royal houses, and really what it came down to was the French and English royal houses. But in my defense, the Wikipedia entry for an article titled Royal Mistresses only lists English, Scottish, British, and European history. So I think we all need to be a little bit more inclusive. Yeah, because the um, like the, um, the Middle Eastern yeah. the ones would have like... Yeah, a lot. So many! Yeah, like all the... Um, um, the, the days of, like, around the Med, like, the day was the name of the, the yeah. royal, so, yeah. Um, that said, I did not use the Wikipedia article this time at all. Ooh, there was that good. much content around. So. It's no secret that men have two heads, and often think with the smaller one, and everyone knows it, and in the royal context, uh, people would look for ways to benefit from that fact. Historian Danielle Sibolowski explains why mistresses were so common in royal circles. Marriages were political maneuvers. Odds are the royal couple had never met before the wedding. They may not even speak the same language. They could have been forced by marrying, uh, into marrying by parents or politics. And sometimes you just take a dislike to someone. So in that context, it's no wonder that they would oftentimes seek happiness outside their official marriage. Adultery was frowned upon, but as long as the monarch only had one side piece, it was generally tolerated, with a correction that male adultery was tolerated. I was just going to say. <laughs> Female adultery at the royal level wasn't because it put paternity of heirs at question, which would have it could have disastrous consequences for dynasties and the countries in general. The so, Catherine Howard of it all. Yes, exactly. Mistresses were often used by kings to craft their public image. Having a beautiful young woman on your arm is a great marketing ploy for showing off your virility. So it puts that out. Also the Catherine Howard of it all. Yes. Uh, they would often have their mistresses depicted in paintings or sculptures as Greek or Roman goddesses. Uh, Diana was a particular favorite, uh, which would then imply that the kings themselves were the corresponding Greek or Roman god. So more telegraphing to their people. Uh, they could also be convenient scapegoats to distract ire and jealousy away from the queen and the general court itself. Uh, so Louis the Sixteenth, the last French king, didn't have an official mistress. So all the hatred of the French court, especially around the questions of immorality that would normally have been lobbed at an adulteress, was directed at Marie Antoinette, his wife. And we all home know how that ended. Yeah. She lost about 12 inches of height and very ugly. Being a pretty face wasn't enough, though. Her hair was huge. She probably lost more. <laughs> a couple feet. <laughs> uh, being a pretty face wasn't enough, though, uh, to get to call yourself a royal mistress. Most women or their families uh, were willing to sleep with the king. So, I mean, you were going to sleep with him if you wanted to. If you wanted to keep that position, it was a different matter. 
The women who were successful at tempting and then keeping kings often after off bleh, at keeping kings offered something more, be it intelligence, political acumen, advice, and in some cases not giving advice. <laughs> Could be just as effective depending on the monarch. Uh, they may have had a special place at court, but had to dance on a very tight line of not demanding or expecting too much, as the recent news out of Thailand proves that's still the case. <laughs> Gotta well, know your place. French. The French, a lot of the French mistresses had a lot of power. Yes, a lot of pa- I'll talk about yeah. a couple of them. A lot of power, but a very thin line for them oh, yes. as well. Yeah. So let's take a tour through some of the biggest names of royal side chicks. Uh, very briefly, just to start with Henry I of England, who ruled in the 1100s. He married twice, but only his first wife gave him children, and of them, the son died. So one would normally assume that was going to be trouble for his dynasty. Uh, however, he left a bunch of claimants to the throne as he recognized 20 of his illegitimate children. <laughs> yeah. There were probably more. <laughs> oh, yeah. He was a randy bastard. Yep. <clears throat> But if we're talking English rulers ruled by their dong, we have to talk about Henry VIII. (laughs) (laughs) The odd thing about him is that he seems to have had more wives than actual mistresses. Which I've already referenced, too. (laughs) Yes. Uh, His first known mistress was Elizabeth Blount, uh, who had a son by him known as Henry Fitzroy. And this was during the marriage to Catherine. So the boy was, or Catherine of Aragon I. So the boy was acknowledged and ennobled as the Duke of Richmond and Somerset, because Catherine had lost a lot of children, only married the daughter, was an official survivor. So the thought was, we can't let any of the royal children out of our sight, just in case. Yeah. There are rumors, no doubt helped by Philippa Gregory's The Other Boleyn Girl, that Mary Boleyn, Anne's sister, was his mistress. I read some arguments from historians that will agree with that and others that will argue against it. So who really knows? But Henry was known as an extreme moralist. So I think to think on one hand, he would be trying to get a divorce from Catherine because she was his brother's wife, while at the same time trying to marry his mistress's sister is a little out of character for this extreme moralist. Because it's basically the same situation. Yeah. Just with him at the center instead of Arthur. So... I don't tend to agree with the Mary Boleyn of it all. Hmm. I, I don't think he would have done that so much just based off of his personality, but it's up for debate. After that, uh, one could argue that Anne was his mistress while he was married to Catherine, even though she played hard to get, as we discussed. Catherine. Catherine. What did I say? Catherine. Catherine. Uh, even though she played hard to get, we discussed last week. He was on to Jane Seymour before Anne was beheaded. In fact, Jane's existence probably played a significant part in the actual execution so that Harry could marry her, or Henry could marry her. And then we have Catherine Howard was around while Henry was married to Anne of Cleves. And again, her presence probably played a part in him seeking to end that marriage so he could hurry up and marry Catherine Howard. So while they say he had more wives than mistresses, I think some of his mistresses were turned out to be wives right. in the end anyway. So bleh. I've seen some historians claim that he has had that he had as many as two dozen mistresses in his lifetime, but that doesn't really track with the man as both the moralizer and his physical abilities. Cause you remember he was badly injured in youth and it just got progressively worse as time proceeded. And it apparently pained him greatly as he aged. 
Uh, and on top of that, he got um, progressively larger and was morbidly obese in the last few years of his life. So the odds of him actively pursuing women, like there was, he had a lot of pride in his yeah. kind of um, image. So to think that he would willingly allow women to see him like that kind of, it doesn't also doesn't really track with what we know of him as a person. So, and then on top of that, we would definitely see more of them in the official historical record because his court was controlled by two or three very powerful families who are constantly throwing their women at him, like Jane Seymour and Catherine Howard. So we would definitely know about it if one of those yeah. families had been successful in putting one of their women into his bed. Like, Well, because they were always, like, these women were just pawns and their families. Yeah. yeah. So if one of them got a woman into his bed, they'd be crowing about it. And the other mm -hmm. two or three families would be trying to get her out. So we would have seen those political machinations yeah. somewhere. There'd be more beheadings. That too. So the fact that we're not seeing that in the historical record makes me think that he probably, the ones we know about are probably it. Yeah. Yeah, he probably stripped a serving woman here or there, but probably more in his youth and less later in life. So, yeah. so well, he if you, Especially if you look at like his last wife. Oh, yeah. Catherine Parr. She was a bit older. She'd already been married. Yeah. She had elderly first husband forced upon her mm -hmm. marriage she was more of a caretaker than she was yeah a wife they probably weren't even sleeping together at that point because he was so large and in pain from the ulcer in his leg that i mean you get a man cold i don't want anyone coming near me like <laughs> so icky so so that's Henry VIII. Across the channel we see an equally complex story a century after Henry with Louis the 14th his first established mistress, who allegedly took his virginity, was Catherine Henriette Bellier, and they had four children together. When that relationship broke down, he shacked up with Claude Devin de Eliot, and they had a daughter. Then he had seven kids with the Marquise de Montpassant. All this while he was married to his queen Marie-Thérèse, and they had six of their own kids together. So... Madame de Pont. No, that's the next oh, king. Okay. <laughs> no. Yeah, that's the next one. Uh, but I do want to talk a bit more about the Marquise de Montspan, uh, because she has a very interesting and dramatic story. Uh, she was apparently so taken with the king the first time she saw him that she was determined to have him. That led her to La Voisin, a famous sorceress of Paris who, for a lot of money, made up potions for Montspan to make the king fall in love with her that could kill or cultivate beauty and that could destroy an enemy. So... One of the potions that Monspan got her hands on included, this is going to skeet you out, dead baby's blood, ah! dirt, and shaved metal from a witch. Apparently witches are metal. First time I'd ever heard that, but there you go. Uh, so Monspan was supposed to take this potion and mix it into the king's food, which she did, and it seemed to have worked because the king threw over his one of his pregnant mistresses in favor of Monspan, and they shacked up at that point. <laughs> my face is just like oh. yeah i know <laughs> uh by all accounts they were deeply and obsessively in love with each other for a time it probably helped that monspan would occasionally disappear from court in order to go on crash diets because a lot of rich food and very little exercise were the norm at court so she would be putting on weight progressively and then would disappear and then come back into the king's life with a trim new figure and they would lock themselves away for a couple of weeks and the whole affair started all over again in very dramatic fashion. This pattern was established and worked for a while, but the king eventually started looking around for her replacement, so she went back to Lavoisin for another uh, set of potions. 
And it was the link to La Voisin that ended Montspan. It came out that she had sought to control the king through these illicit means, and he did not like hearing about that, and she was out. Surprise, surprise. Shock! But he, <clears throat> did he behead her? No. Okay. I was going to say, he... That was, that's far too gauche for the French court. That is they would true. never do anything that English, if you will. <laughs> but all of the women in his life were just passing family uh, fancies compared to Madame de Maintenon, who was born Françoise d'Aubigny. Françoise was born in the prison at Niro, where her father was incarcerated for debt. She married Paul Scarron, who was famous for his burlesque shows. But when he died, he left her nothing but debt. Uh... The Francoise and the king met when Madame was engaged as a governess for Louis' illegitimate children at the recommendation of the Marquise de Montspan. So, oh, I do know this story. Yes. Uh, in a real Sam and Diane twist, the king found Francoise unbearable the first time they met. Uh, but that did not last long. <laughs> Uh, Montspan got the king to give um, Françoise some estates, allowing her to be styled Madame de Maintenon. And when Montspan was put out because of the whole I'm going to poison slash yeah, the witch, you, the witch of it yeah, all, uh, her protégé Maintenon actually took her place as official mistress. It's believed that she and the king, in fact, married in secret in 1683. After that point, the king became much quieter and more steady in his business of running the country, which many couriers resented. Uh, contemporaries described the court at that time as becoming strict and very boring. Well, because she was more pious, right? Was that the one who was a little bit more... like She was, she a bit was more, more stern. quiet, yes. But I think that was more a function of the fact that she was born poor mm. and didn't have that kind of laissez-faire, flamboyant growing up that we see some of these other women had at the time. So I don't think she was very comfortable in the French court, and mm. so withdrew from it. And he went with her, <laughs> for lack of a better term. But there's also the whole thing of, like, she was raising his children for him. Yeah. And I don't think we can discount that, as we know from your daycare situation. Like, it's apparently an aphrodisiac to men. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So a few days before the king's death in 1715, writing was on the wall that the king wasn't long for this world, uh, and she fled the court because she was not well-liked, because she had changed the tenor of it so much, and lived quietly at a school for girls that she had convinced the king to found. And all told, their relationship lasted about 32 years. Oh, wow. It's very long for any royal to be dedicated to any one woman. So. Had his, had his wife died by that point? I'm not sure. I didn't look at the wives. I felt that would bum me out too much. <laughs> a couple of my favorite royal mistresses, though, actually come from the reign of Charles II of England. And the first to talk about is Barbara Villiers. This was a woman who lived on her own terms and didn't care what anyone thought of her. Very much like your... Madame de Pompadour. No. No? The, the, the LA lady. Oh, the, the Dolly? Yeah. Oh, good old Dolly? Yeah, exactly. But she wasn't locking people up in her no. attic. <laughs> That's true. Uh, so Villiers went through a bout of smallpox that miraculously for the disease didn't actually affect her face or her beauty. So that's a really, yeah, a relief and kind of like a, she's really lucky touched by luck or God, like to survive that. Uh, Charles was all in on the relationship with her and no surprise as he is said to have described her as having quote, all the tricks of RTN, a 17th century sex manual that are to be practiced to give pleasure. <laughs> so Babs put out in a big bad way. 
She twirled the tongue. She did. Yep. She was bendy. Yep. Charles forced his queen, Catherine of Braganza, to allow Barbara to be a lady of her bedchamber. And this caused a huge row between Charles and Catherine because they uh, weren't French. Yeah, they weren't French. <laughs> Barbara had six children while she was in a relationship with Charles, five of whom he was sure were his and so acknowledged, which meant she also had side pieces to his side piece because she was married to someone else at the time, too. So, and that's well, six one. They were like, eh, not too sure. But also, like, a lot of official mistresses often were married. Yes. Yes. It was a convenient way to get them at court and yeah. to keep them there. Yeah. Uh... Yes. Uh, even after their relationship ended, Barbara and Charles remained friendly. And when dying, Charles asked his brother, who was to become James II, to be kind to her. And he, for the most part, all accounts, was. Which is, again, odd. Usually the old mistress yeah. doesn't get the best shake of things at the end of the day. But I think that big pussy power probably had a lot to do with why she made She had tricks in her book. <laughs> she did. The other famous mistress of Charles II was Nell Gwynn. Uh, when she was 15, she was discovered by the famous London actor Charles Hart while she was selling oranges, and the rumor said herself. So a 15-year-old possible prostitute, at the very worst, just selling oranges in the theater district at best, which was not a good reputation. Hart trained Nell to be on the stage, and she became one of London's most famous comedic actresses, which is probably how she came to the attention of the king. And remember, this was an era of post-Cromwell, so the monarchy was shaky and politics were very tense, even for a court that is used to tense politics. This was a real, like, walk very softly. We don't want to get back to a protectorate situation. It's thought that Gwyn wasn't the prettiest of women, but had a huge personality and drew the king because she didn't know or want to know anything about politics, which was the sigh of relief for him. She was down to earth, could make him laugh, and rarely asked for favors. Again, another uncommon trait in a royal mistress is yes. to not be asking for favors nonstop for your family. So, Charles and uh, Gwyn had two sons, one of whom died in childhood. And again, as he lay dying, Charles asked his brother, the future James II, to, quote, not let poor Nellie starve. And for all of his general shittiness later in life, James honored the request and... Uh, Maybe he honored it because he didn't have too long to honor it, as Nell died two years after Charles did. But still, mm. James was not the best of people. Bit of a coward and a stink. And he still kept her fed, so there was that. Also, when uh, Will and Kate became engaged, and they were showing that picture of her like up on the stage at that fashion show where like allegedly she first caught his eye, I was like, aw, Nell Gwynn would be so proud. <laughs> Look at you go, girl. <laughs> You go get it. Taking it back. <laughs> now on to your favorite, Madame de Pompadour. Yay! <laughs> she is my favorite royal mistress. She had a relationship with Louis XV from 1745 to 1751, which was actually a long time for that guy, even though it was only six years. So, five. No. Four. Five. Yes. Six years. Oof. Math. No, I know. No. Not our strong suit. She was the first woman in the French court to hold the official title of maîtresse en titre. If you were a diplomat visiting the court of Louis XV, odds are you had to go through Pompadour to get to him. Uh, she was known to meet with diplomats while applying her makeup. So, <laughs> while there was a definite sexual component to their relationship, uh, in fact, she used to complain that she was, quote, 
used too well by the king. Uh, He was known to visit her several times a day. It's generally agreed upon that that sexual component ended after the first few years, but that Pompadour remained his closest political advisor and confidant for about 20 years, all told. That uh, je ne sais quoi, pardon the pun, that kept the king coming back to her again and again, again, pardon the pun, seems to be that she carved out a haven for him away from the demands of his public life at court where he was never alone. So from the moment the king woke to the moment he went to bed, including bathroom trips, he always had people with him. What Pompadour did was create a set of apartments for herself that were quiet and intimate and filled with things that the king loved. So she became a physical and an emotional escape for him as well. She was also known for reading his emotions and offering advice or support before he even knew what he needed. So very delicate, deft hand at managing the king. While the king visited her, he could discuss an encyclopedia-like list of topics with her because she was so well-read and informed. She was known to be interested in topics like architecture, gardening, dance, and gem cutting. All of which were hugely important at this time where Versailles is being built, where the gardens are being developed, and where everyone is wearing a shit ton of jewelry. There you go. To keep the king interested in her, she knew she always had to look her best, offer him an oasis, and keep him entertained while he was with her, all of which she did effortlessly, or seemingly effortlessly, because this all came at a huge personal cost to her. She often went through the expense and the exhaust of preparing to receive the king, but he wouldn't show up. After all, she was there for him, not vice versa. And as a real show of her commitment to this job, uh, her father and 10-year-old daughter both died in the same week, but you would never have known it to look at her. She kept on, as always, in order to placate the king and keep her position secured. So she locked that away for him. (sighs) So, modernish royals have apparently found the habit of mistresses very hard to break. Edward VII of the UK, who is the current queen's grandfather, um, may have been raised by the very reportedly prudish Queen Victoria, but his private life was a salacious wreck. Some historians think he had over 50 affairs. Suspected mistresses include the famous actress Sarah Bernhardt and Winston Churchill's mom. <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> <sighs> Fucking CP. Can you imagine? That's like, oh, how was your mother? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I said the reportedly prudish because, no, that's not true. Yeah. yeah. So, yes, uh, Churchill's mom, he had a passel of illegitimate children, but wouldn't acknowledge any of them, nor pay for their upkeep, nor have anything to do with them once Mm. he had set them brewing in their mother. So, great guy. Only his six children, including the Queen's current father, were ever acknowledged as being his. Deep bag. <laughs> oh, yeah. Massive. It's going through the cross slowly again. So, and then, of course, we have the Charles and Camilla of it all, which I think we don't need to really go into. Camilla! Yes. <laughs> but uh, it's generally established fact that he had a relationship with her before he got married to Diana. The relationship ceased for a little bit. They picked it up again shortly after the marriage and have never really been apart since to the fact where they got married once he was free to do so. Yeah, it seems like he she wanted to get married and he felt he wasn't ready and then she... She went off and got married. married and then he was like, oh, crap. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
tis what it is. Another historian, Kathleen Wellman, makes an interesting connection to modern times that aren't the Thai case, in that she linkens American first ladies to these old school royal mistresses. First ladies present their husband's White House to the world through events and their own agendas, like Jackie Kennedy's famous tour of the White House that was televised in the early late 60s, yep. around there. They often provide their husbands with political advice. Think Hillary Clinton. Like, they actually had to tell her to pull back on the political advice because she was not making friends on the Hill, which debags again. Or they can act as gatekeepers to their husband, uh, such as Nancy Reagan did for most of the time. Like, if you wanted to see Ronald, you had to go through Nancy. Terrible, but it was just the way it was. Yeah. So coming back around to the Thai case, I guess I shouldn't be too surprised. The monarchy is an out-of-date tradition as much as I love and will defend it. So of course these guys are going to go act in an outdated way without batting too much of an eye about it because they are outdated themselves and just refuse to acknowledge it for the most part. And that is my tour through royal mistresses. <laughs> Thank you. That was fun. Twas. <laughs> I'm just glad we got to do Madame de Pompadour. <laughs> I knew I couldn't not do yeah. it. <laughs> so that is our episode for this week. If you'd like to know more about the show and check out our show notes, you can head over to the website, which is www.rabbitholespodcast.com. While you're there, check out the Patreon page, uh, or so the support tab that takes you to the Patreon page. Come on board as a patron. Or the merch tab, which takes you to the Redbubble store where you can check out all the cute merch that we have uh, and you can rep your fandom for us out in the big bad world. If you want to reach us on social media, you can do so on Twitter at Rabbit Holes Pod, on Facebook, Rabbit Holes Podcast page, and Instagram at Rabbit Holes Podcast. If you like what we're doing, you can rate us, review us, give us a recommendation, or just tell everybody you know about us and how awesome we are. Because we are. Because we are. We're kind of a big deal. <laughs> well, we're moderately smallish kind of deal, but <laughs> hopefully we'll get there. So uh, that is it for our show for this week. There's only one last thing to do, and that's to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.